Good morning. It's Monday, the 13th of November, and this is Govindraj Ethiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's smogged out financial capital. Our top stories and themes for the day the stock markets kick off the new year on a strong note. Personal tax collections in India are up almost 30%. Moody's cuts America's ratings. Dysfunctional government, says media. Multinationals are setting up shop in India, but as many are closing down too. Cybersecurity attacks are rising across the world. Australia's ports come in under attack. The markets and key commodities like oil are holding steady over the weekend to strong going into next week, which will see some holidays. This is a core report with Govindraj Ethiraj. The stock market started Samba 2080 or the new year on a strong note. The BSE Sensex jumped 354 points in a special trading session on Sunday to 65,259, while the Nifty 50 rose 100 points to 19,525. Diwali, which was yesterday, marks the start of a new year or Samba, as it's called. And Indian stock exchanges hold a special or Mahurath trading session, which marks the beginning of Samba 2080 and the end of Samba 2079. So this tradition of trading is more than half a century old, and incidentally pays homage to Lakshmi, the goddess of wealth. Speaking of wealth, happiness, and prosperity go together on Diwali, and I wish you all a happy and prosperous Diwali. After all, we are a business show, and business is about wealth creation. Now let's pick up on what others are saying about wealth creation. Rhythm Desai, Morgan Stanley's ever bullish managing director, told BQ Prime that the ongoing financial year will be good for Indian equity markets, driven by positive earnings outlook. Both the third quarter and upcoming two quarters earnings outlook looks positive. This high managing director of the financial services firm told Neeraj Shah of BQ Prime. Due to a shift in policy environment, corporate profits contribution to the GDP can increase past its previous highs and may rise to eight percent in the next three to four years of total GDP. This I said in an argument he's presented before as well. Now, for GDP that's posting at least a ten percent nominal growth. It means corporate profits in India could be compounding at 20%. Earnings compounding at 20% is likely to make India look lucrative globally, he said. Interestingly, Desai, like some other investors, now let me think, Chris Wood of Jefferies, among others, feel that if the outcome of next year's general elections are in contrast to the market's expectations, then there could be a significant downturn in the stock markets. Translated, if the current government does not return to power with a majority, then we are in trouble. At least the stock markets are. I always wonder, if only in jest, that if markets would rise similarly or post significant upturns if the government were to return. Now, there is so much in these statements that is said and unsaid that it's tough to embark on this train of thought. I guess. Meanwhile, whatever may happen next year, foreign portfolio investors continue to sell away this year as they dumped Indian equity worth over five thousand eight hundred crores this month. That's November. Now, this comes after they sold almost twenty four thousand crores in October and fourteen thousand crores in September. Data with the depository showed reported money control. Before this outflow, foreign portfolio investors were buying Indian equities in the last six months from March to August, and bought about one hundred and seventy-four thousand crores during that period. So it's all net positive. If I were to just read the data and ignore all the forward statements, the selling has already begun. Of course, it might be to do with year-end pressures and factors like interest rates in the United States pulling money from, to be fair, many other parts of the world as well. That's the most plausible. But what if there is another reason? Anyway. 
On the other hand, India's debt market attracted about 6,000 crore rupees in the period under review. That's receiving about 6,300 crores in October, according to data. The Indian government securities market is being included in indices like the JP Morgan Government Bond Index Emerging Markets, which in turn has begun attracting funds into Indian bond markets. Speaking of investments, investors are pumping money into American stocks, so much so that a lightning-fast rebound has driven the Standard & Poor's 500 up in 9 of the past 10 sessions and 7.2% over the past 2 weeks, the best such stretch of the year, according to the Wall Street Journal. Now, as it always happens, many investors are betting that this rally has legs. Some have piled into funds tracking US stocks, while others have abandoned trades that would profit in times of market turmoil. Moreover, many have slashed bearish wagers against the S&P 500 and the tech-heavy Nasdaq 100, fearful of getting caught flat-footed if these big gains were to continue. So, the moral of the story, I guess, is don't even think about trying to outpredict the market. On the other hand, maybe quite predictably, the exact opposite of that is happening in the debt markets. I'm still talking about the United States, by the way. So, Moody's has cut ratings in the United States. Ratings agency Moody's has cut its outlook on US credit ratings from stable to negative, citing rising interest costs and the large fiscal deficit as beginning to undermine America's credibility. Political polarization, the ratings agency said, raises the risk that successive governments will not be able to reach consensus on a fiscal plan to slow the decline in debt affordability. The Washington Post's headline read, Moody's lowers US credit outlook citing political dysfunction. Can you imagine that? And in August, Fitch ratings had downgraded the US government's credit rating already, citing the flirtation with a historically unprecedented default earlier this year, as well as the growing debt burden said the Wall Street Journal. India's industrial output slows down. Now let's come home. India's industrial output grew by 5.8% in September, the slowest in three months, according to data released by the Ministry of Statistics and Program Implementation on November 10th. At 5.8%, the latest IIP figure is also below the consensus estimate of 7.4%. In terms of use-based classification of goods, production growth in September was lower for all six categories compared to what they posted in August, like primary goods, capital goods, intermediate goods, infrastructure, and consumer durables. The consumer durables drop has been particularly sharp. All of this is production, just to remind you. Tax collections are strong. The good news is that tax collections are strong as more citizens pay tax or it's being squeezed out of them, mostly because they're not paying as much as they should be or trying to duck it. India's personal income tax, PIT, is up close to 30% or 29% this year as compared to last year. This is even higher than corporate tax, which is around 7%, which means people like you and me are paying more tax than companies are. India's gross direct tax collections till November 9th at about 12.37 trillion rupees were up about 17% higher than the same period last year, according to the Central Board of Direct Taxes. The net collections, which exclude refunds, were also higher at about 22%. And currently, the tax collections stand at about 58% of the total budget estimates for the year 2324. That means that they've already passed the halfway mark for the total budget estimates. Earlier, the Business Standard reported that with the present momentum in direct tax and goods and services tax, or GST, expected to be sustained in coming months, India's total tax collections for 23-24 could exceed the budget estimates by a considerable margin. 
Why are more MNCs leaving India than coming in? An interesting analysis that appeared in Forbes India magazine a few months ago highlighted how more companies were leaving India than coming in over the last few years. The table looked at the years 2018 to 2023 and the last year had only figures up till March. When I say last year, I mean 23. For example, in 2018, 102 companies set up shop but 111 exited. And except for 2019, where more companies came in, four years saw more exits. I'll come to the possible reasons shortly, but we are talking about a specific category of companies, which is multinationals and by extension, foreign direct investment. It also struck me that a lot of companies have actually exited quite publicly, even as others have invested in India. And possibly it does not strike us so much because they're not adding it up. Here's an example from recent weeks. Disney is getting ready to pack up and leave from its India business, either in whole or a good part of it, Reliance being the most likely sweeter. Though Bob Iger, Disney chief who came back from retirement, appears to have had some second thoughts going by his statements just last week, which could also have to do with the fact that Disney has turned in much stronger numbers for the latest quarter than was expected. So all of this obviously has a bearing on why companies leave. So why do companies leave? There are many reasons, said and unsaid. The easy ones to defend are obviously the ones involving global realignment, like it happened with, let's say, a General Motors or a Ford, who just one day caught up and walked away. I also quote these examples because these were physical investments on ground and thus more cumbersome to let go, unlike, let's say, a Disney. Now, there are others who find it difficult to do business in India or have underestimated either the patience it takes or the nature of the consumer. And this, by the way, is still happening 20 to 30 years after India started opening up. I caught up with Ajay Nanavati, who ran 3M, the Post-its and Scotch-Bite brand, which we all know, for several years in India and spent over 26 years in the company. I began by asking Nanavati, who was also chairman of Syndicate Bank until about three years ago, why companies leave India. So Govind, as I see it, I think the crux of the issue really is that it is a little bit of a disillusionment with the expectations that were created. Clearly, again, if I look back at my own journey at 3M when we started the company, I remember my boss telling me at that time, all you need to do is sell $1 worth of stuff and you'd be a billion dollar company. So I think it's a little bit of a misplaced expectations and a disillusion with the reality. As I've often said, a key winning strategy for winning in India is patience. Again, if I look back at our own company's history, for the first eight, 10 years, we were growing nominally. It was only when we hit that inflection point that we really took off. And I believe that in the current era, companies don't tend to have that stay with it, uh, if I may call it that. So I think that's probably the cause is largely misplaced expectations and as a result, disillusionment. If you were to look at some of the specific examples, now the ones that come to my mind, for example, let's say are companies like Ford or General Motors. Now, in those cases, it's clear that they pulled back not just from India, from other countries as well, and they wanted to focus on home market. And there's also some other sort of strategic almost geopolitical shifts happening in the last few years, maybe lower focus on China and so on. When you think of the specific examples, are these also playing a role or is it more domestic? No, I think it is also a factor. I mean, for example, Citibank just pulled out of India as well. And I think many of these companies have decided, like the old famous GE Jack Welch mantra, that if I'm not number two or number three in my market, there's no point being there. 
So I think it's a combination of, I come back to that point, that A, there was a perception, and I know this from my own 3M background, that the perception, and in some ways the reality, was that India is a highly competitive market, consumers are very price conscious, margins are low. So all these kind of factors played into it. But also I think many corporates sort of strategically, I mean, if you look at the U.S., you're starting to see a lot of companies coming back to the U.S. who had set up uh, international operations and are starting to say that, listen, let's stick to the knitting, let's stick to markets we know, let's stick to economies that will give us the kind of margins that we want. Those, in my mind, are some of the factors that played into this. So this is from, let's say, the, the pull side. But what's the push? I mean, why do companies, again, when you visualize the specific examples or some of the ones that you know, why do they fold in India? Again, as I said, I think it's largely due to the feeling that when they entered the market, they came in with a set of expectations. And in many cases, those expectations didn't pan out within the timelines that they had in mind. And to me, that was the primary factor that, A, they felt that this was a hyper-competitive market, margins were getting squeezed, timelines, horizons to start seeing any light at the end of the tunnel were long, and they had other priorities. Said, let's go to markets where we can win sooner and retain our competitive advantage. And that's an interesting point because you feel that, you know, I remember, for example, Kellogg's and when they came to India, there was a big question mark about their product, which is cornflakes. And people said that, you know, India will never change or adapt to a Kellogg's. And they said, give us 10 years. And obviously, things have worked out better for Kellogg's than most people predicted. But do you feel that today, when I say today, I mean, let's say in the last decade or two, that multinationals in general don't have that kind of patience? Well, I think FDI, for example, is a finite pool. There is not unlimited resources. So when resources are constrained, you deploy them to where you can get the biggest bang for the buck in the shortest time horizon. So, I mean, it, in some ways, I don't blame them. As I said, again, looking back at my own company's history, fortunately, 3M had historically has had a long runway and horizon. So they came in eyes wide open because we had been in many emerging markets and we understood that those markets take time to adapt. I think that was the key dynamic at play. Right. And I'm going to come to the talent and culture point that you raised. But the other question is, you know, is also the composition changing? For example, let's say again in recent years, so a Walmart investment in Flipkart is FDI and it's huge. Let's say Foxconn expanding quite rapidly in the country in electronics and assembly. So is that composition also changing and is it like maybe that's really the reason? So historically, if you look back even till fairly recently, the bulk of the FDI that has come into the Indian market has been in the services sector and the IT sector, which is again very people intensive. And historically, the, the rationale was a cost arbitrage play. And I believe now you're starting to see a little bit more in manufacturing, which tends to be far more sticky in the sense that, you know, once you put a commitment into building a bricks and mortar factory, you are committed for the long haul. And I think that's where China has been very successful, is that they got them to set up bricks and mortar facilities. And it's not easy to walk away from a bricks and mortar facility, whereas it is relatively easy to walk away from a services play. And, you know, on talent and culture. So where have companies gone right and where have they gone wrong? Again, we're talking about the MNC universe. A lot of my examples are based on my own 30 years with 3M and having started as the first employee of 3M in India. 
I use that as the sort of the data point. We really built a great team. We were able to attract a lot of talent, but we also invested significantly in our talent. So it was not just plug and play in that sense. Many of us and many of my leadership team had stints in different parts of the world where they got truly groomed into the 3M way. And so I think there was a, a element of investment in grooming that talent, retaining that talent. And nowadays, if you look at some of the attrition that you're starting to see, especially in the IT space, companies are starting to say, listen, can we continue to reinvest in, in grooming, developing, attracting, retaining the level of talent? So, I mean, despite, in my opinion, and I've said this in many other forums, it is a little bit of a myth that India has this vast pool of talent. And I believe that a lot of the talent that is available really needs to be groomed. We are producing a lot of talent and engineers and graduates, but many of them don't necessarily match with what the industry or market is looking for. So this oft-repeated refrain that there is this vast pool of talent is, in my mind, slightly misplaced. I know you referred to the launch of Scotchbrite in India, which I guess is one of the most popular brands of 3M, apart from Posted, at least here. So what's that one tweak that you uh, would, uh, that you recall, which was sort of the tweak for making sure that it fit the domestic market or calibrated the domestic market? So that's a very interesting example that you reach. But I do want to make a caveat that the Scotchbrites and the, we are at heart a B2B company. And uh, these happen to be the consumer-facing products, and therefore people often associate 3M with them. I want to make that proviso. But that's a great example of a situation where I recall very well, we had two major things that we had to do. If I look back at that, when we launched that product line, A was to adapt the size of the pad to meet a particular price point. So for example, in the US, we would have larger pads, whereas here, we had to adapt the size of the pad to meet a market price point. That was one tweak that we had to do. The second major tweak had to do was we had to really modify the value proposition. And not only did we modify the value proposition for the Indian market, but we actually modified it by state. So for example, what appealed to a housewife in Bengal was not the same theme that appealed to a housewife in Gujarat or in Tamil Nadu. So we actually tweaked, it was not a one-size-fits-all. We adapted all our media campaigns, we adapted, and this was not just voiceovers. This was actually different value propositions that were pitched depending on the audience that we were targeting. And this is where the heterogeneity of the Indian market versus the homogeneity of, say, the Chinese market is itself another challenge. Right. And that's a very interesting takeaway, which also obviously gives me the incentive to come back to you for a longer discussion on this theme of adapting to Indian markets. Ajay Nanavati, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, welcome, my friend. Cyber attacks are rising. Australia's biggest ports have been paralyzed by a cyber attack since Friday. And the reason we are talking about it, among others, is that India imports about $17 billion worth of goods from Australia, of which 96% is coal, which obviously comes through many of these ports. The interruptions are expected to continue for several more days, and it's a mass closure that threatens to disrupt supply chains across the country and globally, according to Bloomberg. Ports company DP World, which is originally Dubai Ports, 
which also manages several ports in India, including outside Mumbai, said Sunday that it's made significant progress in re-establishing freight operations after that hack forced it to restrict access to four of the nation's largest ports. Dubai Port World, or DP World, manages almost 40% of goods flowing in and out of Australia. And about 30,000 containers of goods are stuck from moving in and out of their terminals. Ships can still load or unload containers, but trucks cannot get into terminals to pick up or drop off their consignments because the systems are offline, Bloomberg reported. Now, DP World is one of the world's largest port operators, and we've talked about them in earlier editions of the core report. And it's also the latest victim in a string of devastating high-profile cyber attacks globally this year, said Bloomberg. Last week, the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, the world's biggest lender by assets, was also struck by a ransomware attack that blocked treasury market trades from clearing and forced brokers to reroute transactions. Now, this isn't the first time hackers have targeted major ports in July. Japan's biggest maritime port was hit. And a month earlier, several Dutch ports, including Amsterdam and Groningen, faced distributed denial-of-service attacks known as DDoS. And two years ago, South Africa's port and rail company was also struck by a ransomware attack that forced it to declare force majeure at container terminals and switch to manual processing. The reason all of this is particularly important is that, which as all of you know, this is a globally interlinked world. It still is. And supply chains can break down and cause significant havoc down the line, if not delays, including in countries like India, when something like this happens elsewhere. Dubai Air Show kicks off today. And before I go, all aviation industry watchers are heading to Dubai for the Dubai Air Show and most likely have already landed there as of today. And the rest, like me, are trying to follow it from a distance. Reports, including in Bloomberg, suggest that Emirates, already the world's largest international airline, is set to kick off the first day of the event, being today, with a major aircraft order to renew its wide-body fleet with maybe 100 aircraft. Turkish Airlines may also jump in with a giant order for about 350 aircraft, according to people who told Bloomberg. The Dubai show could come close to a better a record from a decade ago, which saw some $100 billion of commitments on a single day. Now, that may not happen, but the larger point, of course, is that aviation is buzzing with action and airlines, including India's Air India and Indigo, who are rushing to add capacity in huge numbers. So, broadly... As airlines add capacity, this also hopefully means lower fares, but also to the industry, it means obviously more jobs and more opportunities. So nothing immediate is on the horizon. The reports already suggest that fares are likely to start easing off by the first few months of 2024. So hang in there. And on that note, wish you once again a very happy Diwali. This was the core report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in. Or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you, including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening.